There's no question that we are awash in a sea of promising new technologies with the potential to advance precision medicine, but is the existing infrastructure adequate to bring innovation into patient care? It's generally recognized that the highest levels of evidence are generated using the prospective randomized trial, which we know to be both costly as well as time-consuming, and generating limited conclusions in perhaps small groups of patients that may not be truly reflective of the real-world patient experience. Can we evolve and find new and innovative ways to generate high levels of evidence? Our guest today is Dr. Dane Dixon, founder and CEO of Taproot Health. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Dr. Dane Dixon, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. We have so much to talk about today, including uh, the work you're doing at Taproot Health and innovative new clinical trial designs. But before we do, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your early experiences that helped shape you and bring us to the point where we are today? I'm a medical oncologist trained practicing and still practicing in a rural community. I left, I was trained at the Huntsman Cancer Institute, left there to explore building better methods of sharing clinical trial information to allow individuals to understand the literature in a much more concise and easy fashion. I did that as I was growing a practice thinking in a small community, I could see oncology patients you know, half the time and then work on this other project for the other half of the time. But sadly, after a few years, one of my colleagues um, ended up getting a brain tumor and dying of it. And so I ended up taking over many of his patients and so became too busy to explore a company that we had called Sumerius at the time. That company, I think, could you know, still has you know, merit, but the timing just was not right. During that time, though, with that Sumerius company, I spent uh, time with pharmaceutical companies looking at evidence and you know how do we share evidence that comes out of clinical trials and i developed this method of summarizing it in a way that made even lay people be able to understand it much better and in that role i became through a series of interesting events that we won't talk about i became the president of the idaho society of clinical oncology and one of my very first meetings, I was sitting in in Washington, D.C. with ASCO. There was a Dr. Bernice Hecker, who was at that time the head medical director at Meridian, who basically said, you know, oncology diagnostics are advancing so rapidly, we can't keep up, we need help. And so reasonably naively, I answered an email and said, Bernice, I can help. And next thing you know, I'm an unpaid consultant to Noridian, helping them understand how to look at you know, data and how to understand molecular diagnostics from a clinical evidence perspective. From Noridian, I, that's how I got involved with Moldex. From Noridian, as they started to work with the Moldex program, I was introduced to Dr. Elaine Jeter, and I came on as the director of clinical science at Moldex and helped put together some of the very early uh, methods of moving forward uh, with advancing molecular testing. I put you know, several ideas in place, such as could local Medicare carriers, could they use something similar to coverage with evidence development to allow promising new technology to come forward um, and how that would help the diagnostic community be able to introduce very, very promising testing in a way that they could 
get earlier reimbursement to it and yet still have the ability to collect data in a way that they could ultimately get coverage. You know, from there, from Palmetto, I left Palmetto actually because there was a concern about how are we going to cover next generation sequencing because of just the vast amounts of knowledge the next generation sequencing would provide to oncologists and Medicare had up to that point, a, you know, we will pay for this test because this test can be used in this indication. They didn't know what to do with 450 or 500 or 1,000 different tests that all came underneath one umbrella. So they were really struggling on how are we going to cover this. And so I proposed, you know, use coverage with evidence development to collect data in order to allow this new technology to come forward and talk to Medicare and many groups about what this would look like. And there was a great interest from a lot of, you know, from Medicare and FDA and other groups to say, you know, this makes a lot of sense. And they basically, through multi-stakeholder you know, input, it became clear that there needed to be a you know, some type of unified method of collecting and sharing data that could not be too onerous on the clinical uh, on the clinical workflow because if it did, then the physicians would not order the testing and patients would be harmed in the process. And so that's when I left and formed a nonprofit company that was initially known as the Molecular Evidence Development Consortium, but then uh, after a rebranding effort became Cure, Cure One. We ultimately shut that down um, after Medicare finally decided to cover next generation sequencing, not with evidence uh, development, which I think actually was a very wise decision for the advancement of medicine, um, but because our entire use case was based on a Medicare or a, a payer um, requested coverage with evidence. Um, that nonprofit ended up, um, you know, needing to be shut down because that use case no longer uh, was relevant, and that led into Taproot. We were faced with this large uh, tsunami of data, and I think there's this tendency for people to fall in love with new technologies, most notably NGS. But I think that that missing link seems to be the evidence, the clinical data. You know, how can we appropriately develop and validate these tests to make sure that they can be used effectively in clinical practice and they can be reimbursed and we can facilitate the development of even more and more tests. Tell us, how did you come up with the name Taproot? I like it. It seems to have like an agricultural reference, a kind of organic reference. So I'm just curious about the name. And then could you tell us a little bit about what you do at Taproot? Full company name is Taproot Health Incorporated. When we were thinking about how do we really build the infrastructure to allow precision medicine to advance. We need a center structure that would, you know, although in the background, underneath the ground, could provide all the strength and the nutrients and everything that would allow molecular medicine to flourish. And so that's where the name came from, was just this idea that we wanted to be able to help advance the, the science, but we wouldn't be doing the science, we'd be helping advance the science. We've had these advances in, in technology, most notably, or most visibly, NGS, you know, where we're able to fully sequence the genome and create uh, new and innovative diagnostic tests. But that missing link, though, seems to be the data, access to the data, and specifically uh, correlating with clinical outcomes. Now, do you think this has been an area that's largely been overlooked? Have you, things, have you seen things go wrong or uh, the development of new tests stifled because of this and the uh, lack of access to quality data? 
one of the difficulties that has taken place in the last 20 years is we've expanded our ability to understand disease you know exponentially and yet we're still collecting evidence based on pharmaceutical clinical trial methods that have been around for decades and so there's a disconnect between what we can do in medicine and how we have developed evidence in the past and that has provided a really substantial problem particularly for the diagnostic industry who many payers would come to the diagnostic industry and saying hey Give me two randomized control studies showing how your intervention made a difference when prospectively you know, planned for and applied in a certain group of patients. And the diagnostic industry just would look and have this blank stare saying, you know, we don't have the same business models. We don't have the same return on investments. This will not work. And so one of the reasons why I, I built Taproot Health is because there needed to be a method that we could introduce new testing and new um, you know diagnostics in a way that data could be collected but we collect it using shared infrastructure because we could see that if we were be able to build the infrastructure that would allow individual laboratories to use the same clinical methods the cl same clinical um, the same clinical infrastructure and they could introduce their new testing in a way that rather than open up their own clinical trial and spend the time and the money they could just attach this new diagnostic testing to the framework that we had already built and in the process through using a shared infrastructure and shared um, clinics and abilities to work together we could advance new testing much more rapidly than we could before. For example, you know, adding proteomics to next generation sequencing to say now how do protein signatures improve what we knew before, it would be something as simple as adding that diagnostic test uh, to what we're currently doing and then compare it to what we were doing a year ago because we had this clinical trial, this clinical data infrastructure that was sustainable and was perpetually collecting data that would allow uh, groups to develop the evidence they needed to go to payers to get reimbursement or even for pharmaceutical companies to do, let's say, add-on um, drug approvals uh, through real-world evidence that the FDA is looking at at the current time. I can certainly appreciate that point. I think in diagnostics, and I've seen this from a variety of different perspectives uh, in a role at the College of American Pathologists, as well as in a company developing these new innovative diagnostics, I can certainly appreciate that we've lacked the infrastructure to do this. And maybe as diagnosticians, maybe even lack the perspective of what's actually happening in the clinic and what the significance of clinical trials is. Now, there's various classifications for levels of evidence, but roughly they are. The highest level of evidence, of course, is prospective randomized trials in more than one uh, setting. The second highest would be a single prospective randomized trial. Then we have prospective observational data, retrospective, and then case reports. I've heard it referred to as must-do, could-do, poo-poo, and voodoo, or some, something along those lines. Could you, could you maybe talk to us about uh, levels of evidence? And then, of course, there's a time and a place for everything. We're not always going to be able to get uh, access to the highest levels of evidence, but talk about uh, these levels of evidence, how it would apply to diagnostics development, and then when it would be appropriate to use each of these types of studies. Great question. 
let's start with the term evidence. Evidence is the idea of how certain I am that when I do some intervention, a test or give a drug, that it would lead to an improved outcome over if I did not give or do that test. And there's various different ways of collecting evidence, as you said, the randomized controlled trial where everything is fixed and, you know, and, and we're able to control everything to such a degree that we can really say this intervention made a difference. That's really important when we're looking at small differences in, let's say, benefit of a drug of some sort. Now, when you start looking at diagnostic testing, it becomes a completely different game. Now, don't get me wrong. We need very good and precise diagnostic testing when they're tied to a drug and a drug you know, intervention, but you know, those companion diagnostics are run as part of those in, you know, drug trials. And so I consider those kind of in a ballpark by themselves. And then the other layers of evidence down to let's call what you call the the voodoo or the you know the the things that are are poo poo or whatever with the term you used was you know the problem is that every time you get from one layer of evidence down to the loosest layer of evidence which is case reports or retrospective data review and um, cohort analysis there are so much variability in patients and intervention and how the physicians work that what happens is you get a lot of bias that gets in, introduced into that data set, which makes a real, you know, there, it's really difficult to get a, a real certain answer that my intervention didn't make a difference. Now, in the center, there needs to be something different. And what we did underneath in Taproot is we said, okay, there's got to be another way of collecting data. And we said, look, interventional controlled trials are absolutely the best way of collecting data, but they're not going to happen because they're very expensive. They're very time-consuming physicians. It's very difficult for physicians to implement because of all the regulations and all the requirements that are associated with that. And yet, on the other hand, we have retrospective data sets that we don't have a lot of bias introducing to them. And so part of what I developed when we were at Cure One, but then it fully evolved in Taproot is, can we build something that is kind of the sweet spot? And so what we introduced in January in a cell publication was the concept of something called the Master Observational Trial, the MOT. And we explained in that MOT that you could, by using similar techniques that they had already developed in interventional master trials, you could apply some of the same techniques in observational studies, and you could fix quite a bit of things, you know, the way the physicians would approach patients, the way the physicians would report on those patients, the way that testing was given to those patients. All of that could be shared underneath one infrastructure, but with enough standardization in the way that data was collected and data was reported that it could provide a new level of evidence that would help advance not only the diagnostic industry, but hopefully also the pharmaceutical industry who are looking, you know, where the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry are looking at new ways of using real world data to get drugs quicker to the patients that need them. And which was mandated in the 21st Century Act by Congress saying we need to speed up the discovery of, of testing and treatment to help advance patient care. Evidence is, is, is a slide from ultra good to ultra bad, and what we need is something in the middle that is good enough.
Absolutely. Now, that is incredibly fascinating. You mentioned possibly developing a new category of evidence, so to speak. Now, this wouldn't be the first time this happened. I think this is in part what has launched this renaissance in in developing new high-value diagnostics is first we created what is known as the prospective-retrospective design, which is what allowed uh, tests like the Oncotype DX breast cancer assay to be validated. That is, we didn't have to wait 10 or 15 years for a prospective trial. We could go back to prospective randomized trials done in the past, but be completely blinded to the outcomes and results and have tissue samples from each of those patients. And then we could could essentially compress the timeframe and produce what was ultimately accepted as level one evidence. Now you're saying this master observational trial schema could potentially be considered a new level of evidence? Correct. The difference between the retrospective prospective or the prospective retrospective study is that it requires that you take information from interventional trial patients. And so you take data from patients that were already run on a trial. Well, what do we know? In oncology, less than 4% of all cancer patients ever make it on a clinical trial. And those that make it on a clinical trial probably do not represent what the real cancer population looks like. And so if we have to always stay in this area of 4% of patients where we learn all our information, we're never going to get very far. And so what we need is we need to say, how can we use real world data, but how can we provide the assurance that it has, you know, we've removed as much bias as possible. What's, a, what's amazing is that as we've really approached real-world data, we've said, let's look at you know, you know, what is plentiful and what is easily to access, and let's hope that we can make it fit. And so what we did is we took you know, you know, retrospective data sets, which, don't get me wrong, are incredibly important and incredibly valuable. But the problem is, is that in order to reduce bias from those data sets, you've got to do a lot of massaging of that data to really try to assure yourself that some benefit existed. And that requires a lot of manual efforts and it requires a lot of back digging into information. And so by us going through and saying, look, let's prospectively collect data, but let's make it easy for the physicians to do it so that they, you know, that make it part of their workflow. Let's do it at the point of care. Let's, let's make sure that they can collect the data prospectively so that as we have that data collected prospectively, it gives us the ability to run a much larger prospective retrospective type study, but instead of using clinical trial data, we could use real world data that has been collected in a very scientifically stringent, but acceptable. And when I say stringent, meaning scientifically rigorous, but acceptable, meaning it works inside of the way clinicians and laboratories have to function because of all the things that they have to do um, in, you know, as part of their you know, entire business. How is this approach different from, say, real-world observational trials? We have those sponsored by pharmaceuticals for post-launch marketing of new drugs, and then I think we're getting into this now with diagnostics. So we have those, and then, of course, there's the SEER database, which is a community-based registry, which has enrolled probably several hundred thousands to millions of patients. So how, how is this approach different than these existing approaches? Great question. Let's talk about SEER first. SEER is an amazing effort. Congressionally and NIH mandated, exempt from any type of IRB requirements or anything else because it is collecting good data. The problem of SEER is it it doesn't collect treatment data. It does not really collect longitudinal outcome data very well. 
post-marketing studies are very much associated with a patient with one intervention and what happens with that individual who received that one intervention. It doesn't discuss what happens to everyone else that didn't receive that intervention. And so it's kind of like one piece of a, of a much bigger puzzle. What we're doing by the master observational trial is saying, look, let's go through and let's not solve the puzzle, but let's maybe make an outline of where the pieces fit so that we can then you know, drill down to certain areas, but have a much more cohesive data collection you know, methodology and method that allows it all to fit together. And with our master observational study, we are not limiting it to one intervention or to one test. We are, it's, it's basically testing agnostic, it is drug agnostic, and it is collecting observational data from the time a patient is diagnosed to the time either they die or until they were lost to follow up. And we collect that data in a way that it allows us to answer innumerable questions, but it also gives us the ability to use some of the patients that may not be in a certain group, be comparators to groups that, let's say, did receive a specific test or did receive an intervention um, that another group did not. And so what we've done is we've built the infrastructure that automatically has built into it the ability to have you know, a real-world intervention compared to a real-world control arm. So you get a much higher level of evidence because you've got the ability to say, I just didn't focus in on one area, and I do have that longitudinal data, which is missing in so many efforts. Yeah, this does seem like it's going to be an incredible step forward. But I keep, in my mind, I keep coming back to the Achilles heel, or maybe your detractors or critics might say, well, this is great. You're incrementally advancing the field. You're providing us something that we've never had before. But Ultimately, it's still not controlled and randomized. How would you respond to that? We have to evolve. We have to evolve in our understanding of evidence, and we have to find new ways of, of advancing that science. And we need to embrace any, a lot of new things that are going to come out of place. The problem is we've got to establish goalposts and what does, you know, what does success look like. And so by us throwing out there saying, look, we don't have a, a gold standard of real world evidence um, in the oncology arena, let's put forth something that could act as that potential gold standard that would allow everything to then, you know, be built upon, you know, built upon it or come out of it allows us to be fairly certain that what we're doing is we're actually, instead of looking at that three or 4% of patients that are on clinical trials, and then making sure that we understand what happens, we now have the ability to look at thousands of patients that are not clinical trial candidates and using advanced, you know, advanced language processing, you know, AI, adaptive learning, all the great buzzwords. We can use that, but we've got to have good data in order for us to use those tools. And so what we firmly believe that the evidence is there, but we've got to make sure that we develop the better methods of standardizing as much as we can in order to get to that evidence. Now, what about patient consent and privacy issues? Do you see any barriers there or any reticence or reluctance uh, for physicians and patients to be enrolled in these types of trials? Patient consent is a very important protection of patients to make sure that they're well aware of what's happening to them and their data. You know, patient consent is always 
as part of an IRB re review process where underneath that process the IRB has to look at a protocol and they have to look at what you're asking with the patient to do with their data so that patient consent becomes extremely important particularly if we're going to be using data you know, broadly but probably on a very practical sense patient consent is extremely valuable because it gives us the ability to look back so rather than collect every piece of detailed information on a group of patients, um, which would be impossible to do, if we collect enough information on an individual patient, but we still know who that patient is, in other words, that patient is identifiable as part of the patient consent, the IRB and the study, then even though the data is released as being de-identified, a group could come back and say, I really need to understand more about these types of patients because we have patient consent and the way we've built this as a prospective study it gives us the ability to drill back down into individual patient records and let's say let's do an independent review of radiology studies let's do a outside review of how the testing was implemented let's do a deeper dive into um, the record to find out exactly how drug was administered in other words it gives us that ability in a, most data sets, in order to, if you go and you don't have patient consented data and to make it HIPAA compliant, the data has to be shared in a way that it cannot be re-identified. And so it becomes a very gray area if you are taking and obtaining data from patients without patient consent and yet you know who those patients are and then you are hooking things back up and together again. In most cases, IRBs would say that does require patient consent because you are keeping the patients in a method that you are keeping them identified when you're letting the data go out to individuals, even though the individual group that is looking at the data may not who the patients are, you know who those patients are, and so it's a very gray area in the, in the patient protection arena. Last thing I'll say is that you know, we should probably err on the side of caution. We've learned from certain, um, you know, certain, group, you know, certain rules that have come out of the European, you know, European Union and from you know, very significant press that has taken place when there has been data that has been shared without patient consent. We have the, we're in a post Henrietta Lacks world where patients and families want to know what's happening with their data. And so as evidence needs to evolve, we also need to make sure that we're erring on the side of keeping patients more informed rather than less informed, which can, what can happen if we do not use patient consents and use data for research purposes. Absolutely. We are finding ourselves uh, awash of data, and I think it's very uh, important to be thoughtful about how we're going to use this. And increasingly, patients are becoming more and more informed and educated about what this means. So I think it's you know, certainly, like you said, important to strike a balance uh, to use this in the best way possible. Now, you've developed this uh, master observational trial uh, schema at Taproot. Now, let's talk specifically uh, how you can advance the field forward. I think you certainly have in mind specific applications. What do you see in terms of uh, developing new diagnostics, for example? Now, to answer your question, how do we see this being utilized? Well, as we start to collect data through, let's say, any one of these pilot groups, we can have a laboratory come to us and say, all right, I really, really want to understand how this new diagnostic test that we are trying to introduce or this new biomarker can have benefit. Well, we have the ability through our protocol, because it was built very modularly, to 
we add that testing because it's an observational test, add that testing um, as part of just a regular you know, running of the trial to allow a group to then be able to look and say, how does my biomarker really compare to what is being done when we don't run this biomarker? So we built the infrastructure that allows groups to then collect data on certain patients, and it allows us to focus our efforts on collecting data in those patients. You have somewhat of a unique perspective, taking into account your role at Palmetto, and you, I'd like to touch on something briefly. Briefly, you said about FDA applications for new uh, drugs or devices. How do you think this model's going to be received by the FDA and other regulators? You know, the proof is in the pudding is the best way to answer that. It all comes back to quality and how well the data can be validated as being quality. Um, how well can the infrastructure do what it's meant to do? Can you enroll patients? Will physicians utilize that, that technology? And so I do believe that there's going to be great interest from groups like the Food and Drug Administration or, and pharmaceutical companies and device manufacturers to work together to support something like this initiative. But it's kind of a chicken and egg argument. We've got to build all the infrastructure to start to collect the data. And people will say, well, we don't know what to do to support this until you've got the data to tell us whether we should support the data. And so that's our chicken and egg argument. You know, If we build it, they will come. We believe as we build it, they will come. But we're hoping they come earlier to the table to help us build it better. We would like nothing better than to have a group of four or five pharmaceutical companies, a couple of device manufacturers, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, a couple of payers, both private and public, come together and let's really talk about how we can use, we can help data um, advance from this old school randomized controlled trial to a new school of you really using real world data and artificial intelligence to advance patient care. Uh, new school, I like it. Now, Dr. Dixon, it's uh, been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I think you're really bringing us back to our our central focus or our wheelhouse here. You know, I think there's a lot of moving parts uh, with the development of new diagnostics and drugs, and I think it's hard to not to get the wires crossed. So we have regulatory aspects, bodies like the FDA, then there's payers, the largest of which being CMS, and then there's CPT coding and, bill, and billing and reimbursement aspects as well. They certainly intersect. And you have a unique experience at uh, Palmetto from the payers aspect. So I would say the role of the FDA is roughly to evaluate claims on new diagnostics and drugs and answer the question, is this safe and is this effective? And then the payers want to answer the question of, should this be reimbursed and at what rate? And then a big key to that is, well, show me the evidence and we'll evaluate it and, and hopefully come up with a decision. So do you see the roles of these bodies evolving or are they going to have to, to keep pace uh, with, with further innovation? Cancer today will kill 1,600 patients. 1,600 families and friends will mourn the loss of somebody because they died of cancer. The deaths from cancer eclipse COVID-19 and actually eclipse the deaths of every war we've ever fought in the United States if we were to run them all concurrently. And when we're all sitting here saying, how do we help the patients? How do we advance the care? We have to interface. We have to come together. 
And we have to stop working in silos. We've got to build the initiatives where we are looking at better ways of collecting data, better ways of using that data, and probably suspending disbelief and, you know, and allowing things to advance in a way that we can collect data on these new advancements, but you know, trust then verify, as people say. Let's trust that this new diagnostic testing can make a difference, but then we'll verify it, but we'll verify it on the back end. And so I hope for the you know good of the patients that we do better build a better, you know, cohesive group of stakeholders to come together and do what we need to do, which is advance medicine, which is going to really advance through precision diagnostics and precision medicine is going to be the way that we're going to really come to a understanding how to care of these, take care of these patients. Yeah, that's wonderful. So I, are you, is it fair to say you're optimistic about the future? And if so, what, what excites you in the, in the next 10 years? Do you see a shift away from uh, high value therapeutics, more towards high value diagnostics? Do you see us being able to iterate more rapidly to bring uh, new, new and better products uh, at a faster rate to patients to help advance the state of care? What excites you? What excites me is just what we can do with technology to better define disease. What excites me is the ability for pharma to go in and develop drugs at just a, a dizzying pace. What scares me and what I'm very cautionary of is that understanding the complexities of malignancy. We have barely scratched the surface of testing by getting next generation sequencing covered. It took us almost 10 years to get next generation sequencing finally covered by a major payer. Drugs are taking seven to 10 years or longer to make it to market. And so unless we do develop new methods, particularly when we're looking at much more complicated diagnostic methodologies, I'm very concerned that unless we build these new methods, we are not going to see these new technology advance because labs are not going to be able to focus on, you know, how do we collect the data to show that proteomics plus, you know, genomics pr provides benefit or what are we going to do when we're looking at immune signatures or gut, you know, gut microbiome or any of those other areas that are, we're all interested in. Unless we build these larger and better standardized data sets I'm afraid that we're not going to be able to develop the, you know, a stepwise approach to advancing precision medicine. We're going to just continue to work in this very piecemeal fashion with it hit and miss with individual companion diagnostics and maybe a certain test given at a certain time in a certain way. And we will really not truly understand how it all fits together. Dr. Dixon, thank you so much for coming on. How can folks learn more about you and Taproot Health? So our website, www.taprootco.com, gives a lot of information about what we're doing, how we're doing it, what are the incentives for physicians to participate, and why does it work from just an administrative standpoint. And they're welcome to contact us through that website, and we're happy to give them any information that they would like to receive. Our guest has been Dr. Dane Dixon from Taproot Health. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. Thank you.